welcome back to Ramen FM, where we discuss stories, tactics, and actionable insights that will help you take your bootstrap startup to Ramen profitable and beyond. Today, we have another very special guest, Jack Ellis. Jack is the co-founder of Fathom Analytics, along with Paul Jarvis, and host of the Above Board podcast. Fathom is a privacy-focused web analytics SaaS and excellent Google Analytics alternative. I use Fathom personally on about five different websites and can confirm it's far easier to navigate and use, in addition to being respectful of privacy laws like GDPR. They're now on 450,000 sites, probably more since this was recorded, have billions of monthly page views and clients like GitHub and IBM. We discuss the unique challenges of building privacy-focused products, Jack's advice to bootstrap founders, and so much more. So with no further ado, let's get into this one. Jack, over to you. How did I do there for the intro? Get anything wrong? Miss anything? Yeah, no, that's that's great, man. I was gonna be I was gonna be really cocky and say, <laughs> oh, actually, it's five hundred thousand websites. <laughs> yeah, man, nice. No, it's going good, and that's a great intro. Awesome, nice <laughs> one, man. Yeah, I hope people know if I'm ever bragging, it's all uh, it's all tongue in cheek. If I'm ever bragging, by the way, it's uh, yeah. Of course, of course. Can you just talk a little bit about the origin story of Fathom and how you came to join as co-founder a little bit later on? Yeah, definitely. So Paul Jarvis, author of Company of One, designer, all this stuff has been on the internet for, I think, probably 70 years at this point. And he had this idea of, you know, analytics can be simpler. Why do we have to be using this complex interface? And he sends out a tweet a mock-up of what could be. Well, everyone reacted really well to that tweet and they got excited. And that said to Paul, okay, well, we've got something here. Other people are having this problem. Fast forward a little bit, he's found a developer to help him build a kind of basic product. And, and that starts to do, do relatively well. It gets to around 1,000 MRR, slowly but surely. And obviously, Paul had a huge audience that he could utilize to try and distribute it. And that definitely brought some people in too. But it was starting to stagnate and the other developers sort of got a bit bit bored and had other things that he wanted to do. And so Paul was on the verge of closing down Fathom, despite the fact that there'd been this initial traction. And me and Paul at the time were building something called Pico, which Ghost actually acquired later on. But that was a separate product we were doing. And, you know, I was at his house and we were building it, that sort of thing. And then he said, you know, I think about closing it down. The only other option we really have is for you to come on board. And I'm thinking, oh, this is written in Golang. I'm a Laravel developer. I don't really know what I'm doing here. But we decided to give it a go anyway. And so I said, look, let's rebuild this. Let's reincorporate in Canada. And I'm going to rebuild the whole product and we'll migrate whoever's there. And so that's how we started off. And then that's that's really the starting point for me and my involvement in Fathom. And then we've grown it from 1,000 MRR to... Yeah, yeah. I'm not gonna. We don't talk about money, the money <laughs> side of things, but it's it's a successful business now. I think yeah, we can read between the lines with the amount of sites you have on there and that sort of thing. But I'd love to hear a bit more about your. How did you come to meet Paul in the first place? Was it because you were both in Canada? Was it sometimes before that? Paul used to have a course called Creative Class, and it was it would help freelancers make more money you know, and I was a freelancer I didn't know anything about sales and marketing and I realized that I was living where he lives and it wasn't intentional he just happened to be in the same area and so when I realized that I said oh we should meet up for coffee and so we meet up and we're just talking and we just you know, things just click we hit it off and things are just things feel good you know when you meet someone and you just feel a good vibe and we then kept in touch 
and we built a, a random side project. It was just a silly crypto project where we accepted crypto as payment. This was a, a long time ago. And then you get like a leaderboard ranking. It was just rip off, of, rip off of another site. And then we enjoyed working together so much that then we started Pico. And that's when we were going to compete with Medium and we had it all built. And we effectively, we didn't bin it, we gave it away, but it was a sort of binned. And then we just did Fathom from that point on. I remember originally being, when Fathom first came out, surprised at seeing a web analytics company that was kind of charging a monthly subscription. I think it's just because everyone was used to Google Analytics, mm. like at the time, myself included. Obviously, it didn't last long as I'm now yep. a user and paid for it and that sort of thing. But um, I mean, did, <laughs> did it Did it just, did it kind of like, because it, it sounded like it got to a thousand MRR in fairly fast succession, but was there like a bit of resistance or he- hesitancy early on for getting people to, to actually pay for it that you yes. had to, to deal with? Yeah. So different demographics behave differently. Some people would pay instantly to save themselves time. And and there's always going to be different demographics of customers. We effectively had to educate the market, but we also had help. People were suddenly becoming aware that Google isn't just this generous company that's out to give you free stuff. There's stuff going on that we're perhaps not aware about and we can read about their privacy scandals. And people became more concerned about privacy. And we can charge a price and not do anything sketchy. You know, like we're not selling your data or we're not, you know, anonymizing it and selling it and selling trends to some random companies. And they they can feel safe in that and then, and they pay and they know how we're how we're running. And so there's really been this kind of trend that coincided alongside Fathom. And you know, in startups, you, people obviously startups aren't all luck, but there are big elements of luck in startups. And so Whilst we're doing this, people are, you know, Cambridge Analytica, the leaks, the the Facebook stuff that's going on, and people are becoming aware of this. And now you already had people that were aware of what Google were doing, you know, various stuff they're tracking about you, and they were already concerned. But things really kind of, if you imagine it was a small fire, you'd say that petrol or gasoline to, to the American crowd was thrown on that fire. And then things really lit up. And then what's really interesting is privacy law. Now, it's really a case of, do you want to pay $14 a month and we're going to keep you good on privacy law because we're going to invest thousands in the best legal minds on this? Or do you want to take the risk of having Google on your site? If you're a small indie maker, you might take the risk because like, you know what are the chances of you getting sued? But bigger companies, even SMBs, are coming along because their lawyers have said, look, you shouldn't really be using Google on your site. Look at all these EU rulings. And then we led the way on something called EU isolation which is, I know I'm going off on one here, but this is kind of bringing back some memories. EU isolation was this kind of CDN level owned by an EU. We route EU visitors to the EU on EU servers, so it's rapid for you in the UK and everything else. And then the other visitors go to you know the US. And we, we innovated on that. And then that put us in another good position to really, I suppose, take advantage of the, the legal lands, landscape because we were already a privacy first company, but then we also put in all this energy to be compliant and legal as well. And so that really affected things. That was another case of luck. But we prepared. We didn't know the rulings were going to happen, but we saw the, what is it, the European High Court of Justice, whatever it's called. We saw the ruling they made and we thought, okay, this is going to become something bigger. We then spent months working with lawyers and building this thing. And then in January 22, the rulings came in. Google Analytics is illegal in the EU. And I'm sure there's the marketing side of things that the business minds will get, but it's actually, there's the legal side of things. People were panicking. Um, we speak to multi-billion dollar companies now where their legal team see GA as a huge risk and they want to move to Fathom. And they'll pay tens of thousands of dollars, like 
seventy thousand, eighty thousand dollars a year if if we have the energy to close them and we want to go into enterprise sales. But that's a very different market. So we did face that resistance to answer your question, Charlie, but it's very mm. much changing. There will always be a demographic that isn't willing to pay. And that's fine. You know, your product isn't for everyone. I can imagine when that public narrative started really taking off. You know, if Lux, when preparation meets opportunity, it's kind of similar to um, Peter Levels building Nomad List before digital, being a nomad was a thing, right? But And you were kind of already interested mm-hmm. in privacy law and that sort of thing early. So when that narrative took off, you're kind of there to, to take advantage of it. Just a quick aside, but oh, like, at, at what point did you start investing in lawyers on your journey? Well, that's a great question. When, when the stakes became higher, I suppose is the answer. That's like a politician answer. There was a, there was a moment where we, we went by our gut, dude. Like I, there wasn't, I can't even remember the moment, but there was a gut feeling of we should really be having some legal eyes on this. Yes, it's going to cost a bunch of money, but we owe it to our customers to do this. And so previously I came, I came from, I don't have a legal background, but I, I worked for a law firm and I had exposure to a lot of the stuff and I had awareness of, so I'm comfortable around the law. I'm comfortable digesting it to an extent, but I'm not a lawyer. You know, it, it would be gross misconduct for us to not involve lawyers, being dramatic there perhaps. But when our gut said it was time to get lawyers, we got lawyers in, is my answer on that one. Yeah, makes so sense. Makes so sense. And a lot of our listeners also have freemium products or have considered having a freemium plan and that kind of thing. You mentioned that sort of resistance you had for getting people to, to start paying but like in a, on a more sort of tactical mm-hmm. product level is there anything that you found that was really helpful for getting to people to go from from free to paid i believe your your paid conversion is something like 90 percent now which is absolutely insane but was there anything you did to kind of help you get to that point uh education you know if people don't know what's going on if people don't know what's happening if people genuinely think that google analytics is free you know they they don't not aware of what the stuff that google does same with facebook and if they don't care by the way if someone doesn't care about this and they say oh you know i don't care if someone knows that i've been on this this site then that's one thing but we're also now seeing fallout when we'll call them consumers <laughs> website visitors when customers <laughs> are using safari and brave and they see that you're trying to track them through a bunch of stuff certain customers can be put off by seeing that so there's this whole new layer that didn't exist before where people are getting awareness on this what's this what's this number here what's this shield oh, I don't like the look of this. And it's spreading not just to the tech crowd, because the tech crowd might not care. They might have you know the ad blockers set up and everything, but the non-tech crowd are just becoming more aware of this, where they haven't perhaps been using ad blockers, but now Safari is offering this. You know what Safari does with the Shield. That's a new thing. What are the best ways to educate people? Like, Do you have kind of different touch points through content that you use to do that? And then at the lower level, or you think you have a quite successful affiliate scheme, obviously, which must help with stuff as well. Education through content, content yeah. that isn't boring. You know, if we, if we just publish legal content, the lawyers and the DPOs, they love that. But people on this chat who are watching are not going to read our legal content. And so it's really about giving an accurate overall picture of the landscape, talking around it, giving opinions not being afraid to have a strong opinion about stuff and letting people make up their own mind. Huge part I want to point out, and I've seen people try to do, don't try and guilt people into stuff. If you're using Google Analytics and you're watching me saying, yeah, I'll listen to this guy, but I'm never going to use Fathom, that's like, 
I'm not going to try and guilt anyone. That's never a good marketing strategy, by the way. And people have tried that. Oh, it's illegal. Stop doing it. I'll write the kind of grandiose content, but I'm not going to go after people and you know tweet them and then put them on blast publicly. So I want to just give people the information and let them decide by themselves because I believe that people, people are smart enough to decide for themselves given the right education. And then the affiliate side of things, even outside of the affiliate, even if we're just talking word of mouth, when influential influential people learn about things, they will share it with their audience because they want to provide value. The same way I share my stuff in my my info products, you know, thousands of people buy those. It's I'm sharing another product. In that case, it's like Laravel Vapor or Serverless AWS. I'm not being paid by them. I've learned this. I have value to share with others, and so I'm then. I don't want to call myself an influencer, but I am influencing others because our journey with this tool is is relevant to what they're doing. So Fathom yeah. also works like that, which is really fun. Yeah. So there seems to be like a nice symbiotic relationship between different parts of your funnel of like the education content part, part of it, influent, as you say, influencing sort of influential people. And then they may <laughs> share an affiliate link with their audience or something like that. And is that a kind of like quite a deliberate sort of strategy, would you say? Yeah, they don't always even share an affiliate link. I mean, that is obviously yeah. a big part, but some people just like to have alternatives. They're not motivated by the 25% for life or whatever. I think it's 25% we offer. They're not motivated by that. They're motivated by being the leaders and authority on the topic. And we need people like that who are who are challenging our thoughts, making us really you know consider our positions. They might send us off in one way where we say, oh, no, that's stupid. You know, why, you know, you think at least it's engaging your brain and i think that's good for society when we're actually thinking about things so absolutely and just to touch on affiliate schemes again specifically like a bunch of us have sort Mm -hmm. of looked at these and there's just kind of different ways to do them and that sort of thing is there any kind of things you just learn about how to do these effectively or is it a lot of trial and error or any kind of advice to people who are thinking about doing something like this yeah i think in the early days it has to be percentage based because unless you're VC funded, you know, Digital Ocean gave away, no, Digital Ocean, you know, I'm talking, Dropbox gave away yeah. space and that's a different story. They did really well on that. I think your affiliate program needs to be really generous in the early days, but it shouldn't put you in a position where you have liability. So things like holding on to cash for a period of time is, is a huge one. You know, having good solid terms. I saw something on Twitter the other day, which I really like, which I'm going to share. Someone, mm. I think it was Peter Levels, actually. He had he said no Google adverts, no Facebook adverts. And he had a bit of code where if it had the G click ID or the FB click ID in the URL sh- um, query string parameters, it didn't inject the referral stuff. Did you? I don't know if you saw that, but that is a no. really smart idea to put people off from trying to you know hijack your brand, search, that sort of thing. So tread carefully. Don't overthink it and just make it so generous that people want to do it and expect to have to adjust. We built our affiliate system, by the way. I mean, you can use things off the shelf. We built it in, I want to say, four hours. I was overcomplicating it, thinking about how we're going to do the payouts, blah, blah, blah. I said to Paul, we could probably build this in an afternoon if we really just get our heads on and just attack this. And we did. I think it was like four or five hours. I remember the room I was in building it. Did you ever consider spinning that out as another product? Was that just too much of a distraction at the time? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So this has come up. We've talked about open sourcing it. It's... You know, I'm a de- my developer brain goes, why would I spin it out? It's so simple. My business brain says people would benefit from this. Maybe one day. We'll see. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. And what percentage of your leads are coming from affiliate marketing? 
directly versus other sources? You know what? I am the worst entrepreneur to talk to in terms of stats. You know, you've got <laughs> entrepreneurs that optimize on their stats and they are measuring things. We're, we're not there yet. Our, I'll tell you, our biggest bottleneck in our company right now is, is feature development and our roadmap. So we're, yeah. we're not even in a place where we need to tweak various things. So to answer your question, it's substantial, but it's not the dominating distribution channel. If that's a, is that a good answer? Is that a politician's answer or is that a good answer? <laughs> yeah. I think it's a good answer. I think it's a good answer. And you were you were talking recently on Above Board just about, you, so you mentioned your struggles with feature development. So maybe giving a bit more sort of trust towards your team to develop things and not be require your involvement quite so much. It, has that been like a big part to kind of unlocking that bottleneck? Are there any other ways you're kind of thinking about that? Yeah, so this is this is a fresh wound. This is a this is a Jack doesn't know how to manage a team because you know I'm used to working on stuff. I'm used to getting my headphones on and just working. Well, that's kind of tricky when you're having to strategize, be involved in financials, legal, other businessy things. You know, like some of the emails we get, the people we talk to, it, it's a lot harder to get my head down and code. And so I need to delegate. And so I've had to fight through reluctance to accept that I can't do everything because you know, there's a, I guess there's a tad of ego there, not intentional, but so I want to do everything. I want to have the control and that's just not the case if you want to build fast. And so I've had to learn and it's been a real struggle for me because this is all brand new for me. I've had to learn how to delegate, not just the work itself, but the solving of the work, if that makes sense. My final thing I had to conquer was if something was really fiddly and complex, like imagine, you know, different layers of rate limiting where you have to think about Google's API, but then you also have to think about people that want to come and abuse your software as well. I'm thinking, oh, they can attack from all these different levels. And I kind of caught myself and I go, no, this is not your job to solve. Explain the business problems and the business concerns to your engineer who you trust, who you've worked with for, you know, you've known for however many years. Just explain everything to them and let them get on with it. And I did that. I stepped away. And the next day I'm, I've got this um, this comet done and it was beautiful. And I said, I messaged Paul and I said, Paul, I've found the groove. I am in the groove finally. It just took me a long time, man. And it's something I really struggled with. And I, I don't know if other people have struggled with that, but that was my real a real weak spot of mine. And I'm now past that finally. I'm sure a lot of people do struggle with that. Were there any sort of particular resources that helps or, you know, kind of people's advice that you sought just to improve on that? Yeah, so Matt Wensing of Summit and Ruben Gomez of Signwell. Both of those two chaps are experienced entrepreneurs and they've managed teams and Ruben's been doing it for 100 years at this point. And I was able to pick their brains privately and also on our podcast and learn from them and just get different mindsets. And Matt Wensing, he's, he steps away and his engineer's deploying and stuff. And I'm thinking, well, my skill set is with hyperscale and hyperscale data. I'm valuable there. Those are things I don't want to delegate at this point in time because I can do those pretty well and it's going to be hard to find someone to to replace without spending you know, $400,000. I don't know how much you'd spend on someone. You know, top, top, top database engineers are expensive. I'm not saying I'm as good as them. I'm just saying I can do that stuff. But, you know, building a Google Analytics importer, a good, solid engineer can do that. I don't need to be involved in that. So the last podcast that we did, which is not actually out yet, we spoke to No Code Lytics, two of their members are in Ramen Club, which is a analytics software for Webflow specifically. And a big kind of challenge is 
on scaling. And I suspect mm-hmm. that maybe that's been a big challenge for you as well, growing Fathom, just because of the sheer amount of data that you use. Is that accurate? And if so, how do you kind of go about that, broadly speaking? Yeah, that was a huge challenge. I had no experience with scaling anything over 5, 10 million rows, maybe. I effectively had to become a DBA. I learned and I learned and I learned and I didn't resist it. I did a little bit actually at the start. I resisted it a little bit, but I learned because this is the core part of our business. And if I'm the CTO, I should probably have a rough idea of this stuff. And I was very fortunate to make some really good friends. So I'm now friends with some of the best database engineers in the world. Like Carl wow. Silver, who does the CTO webinar with me, he's on. He's one of the best engineers in, in like da- in database land in the world. And that's not just me being grandiose marketing hype. <laughs> I am friends with him. And so that's kind of a cool friend to have. And it's it's not just an extractive relationship. Like we get on just outside of that. And yeah, network has been really important. And I'm now in the place where, you know, we've got billions and billions of rows, tens of billions, and I'm, I'm not faced. To what extent do you rely on your own infrastructure versus third parties like AWS and that kind of thing? Has that changed over time? Yeah, so with the Schrems 2 ruling in the EU, when we had to start moving all EU traffic through an EU proxy where we invented EU isolation, I brought in my friend Lucas, who happens to work for Hetzner, which is like an EU cloud company, so it's awesome. He built out a layer of servers across three regions. We have three regions of redundancy, load balanced on each of them, obviously, and load balanced, I think load balanced at DNS level or something like that. And we maintain our infrastructure there. I'm not involved in that because I hate managing servers, but Lucas is genius. We work with really good people. That's actually a a trick we have at Fathom. We we work with great people. And they often come out of our personal network as well, which is really nice. And so we use AWS and other things for the rest of it, though. Just touching on that, can you just talk a little bit more about your your tech stacks? You're, You're known for writing Laravel, for example, but just like from what you're willing to share, sort of, top to bottom, what, what are you built in these days? Mm, application load balancer, Lambda, Laravel there, SQS, single store, no MySQL, no Postgres, Golang for the EU isolation proxy, JavaScript in various areas, Inertia.js for our dashboard. Don't use any Redis, don't use DynamoDB anymore. That's pretty much it, I think. So you tweet a lot about Laravel, and obviously I think you've done a course on it and that sort of thing. Um, is this something that like you you use because just because you started on it and kept it? Or is it something that you also kind of recommend to new devs to start you on Laravel? Yeah, the Laravel ecosystem is really strong. <laughs> this is when we get into my my thoughts or my perceptions when venture capital is involved. Yeah. Laravel LLC is a profitable company that is behind Laravel. There's no venture capital. There's no big VC kind of boom or bust, losing money, that sort of thing. So I feel very comfortable with Laravel. I also have been using PHP since I was 13. So I'm comfortable with it. New developers using it? Absolutely, yeah. But I have I have no, I mean, Next.js seems fine as well. You know, I'm not like, I use it and I talk about it because I talk about my experiences. I don't typically go off and give big recommendations about stuff like like that. I will always just talk about my experience and then people can make their own mind up. Yeah. So, yeah, maybe they should use it, maybe they shouldn't. But I love Laravel. The ecosystem is really strong and it's sustainable. There's no venture capital involved where we're wondering, is this company going to be sustainable long-term as they compete at the highest possible level? But these things are open source and the open source communities can take over and you know how it goes. But yeah, Laravel is awesome. You've 
touched on the challenges of scaling and an analytics company, but are there, is there anything specific about being privacy focused? So you mentioned also the legal side of this, but on a technical level, are there certain challenges to, to having a privacy first startup? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, being able to do unique visitors and things like that without storing IPs, you know, Google, who knows what Google's storing? I don't think they're not very clear about that. <laughs> yeah, so we invented a, a kind of, because people say fingerprinting, this isn't actually finger, fingerprinting is where you like, you look at the device and unique characteristics and you compile it and then you store it. Well, we cycle this salt key. So we get variation by the day and we can't track your users long-term. And this is a limitation of Fathom, but no one seems to care unless you're doing this. You know, when you get marketers that try and get every single touch and then you think, well, hold on a minute, this is pointless because Apple um, is blocking things like Facebook from, oh, what do they do? They've changed a bunch of advertising stuff and it really kind of messed with Facebook. And people are, the tech companies are, oh, not all tech companies, but Apple is is a big one, pushing back against this this advertising flexibility, this multi-touch. I think multi-touch is, yeah, I don't think it's that great. I think it's overrated. I think marketing is a much bigger picture. I think it's, I think it's worth it when you have to try and prove your worth. Maybe experiments too, but it's still, it's very hard to do attribution, you know, across multiple days. So we don't do that. We have a salt that cycles every 24 hours. And we, we created this. No one was doing this back in 2018. I remember because we were we had a moment of oh damn we're using cookies this is violating the e privacy directive. I said to my wife like, I need to go off and just have some time to myself and build something. And me and Paul just built it. I was in a hotel room shipping this because it was a big big update. I needed to be just in my own place and I didn't have that at the time. And we were just shipping this thing. And then this is now the standard. This is now if someone tries to copy Fathom. They'll dig up how we do things. And so we've set an industry standard for that now. Whereas before it was like fingerprinting to disgusting levels. <laughs> In my opinion, disgusting levels where they went to the device. So yeah, that's been a big challenge, Charlie, to be honest with you. Love that. It's proper R&D. And you're talking already about... Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, no, I'm a big fan, big fan. Can you talk a little bit more about the sort of what big priorities you have that you, you that you can share at this stage over the next year or so, feature-wise? Oh, man. Yeah, as long as you promise me that Paul doesn't listen to this because I've been <laughs> banned from hyping features because we get okay. pulled in multiple directions and I will hype something and then we'll get pulled because there's some legal thing that's happening and we have to build something to respond. So Teams has been built and is needs to be tested and everything, but that's coming. Oh, what else can I share? I'll go on then. Entry exit pages. I'm so reluctant to say this, but <laughs> more, more funnel-based stuff. So marketers can, can do more stuff and not invade user privacy to do it. Dynamic event properties has been built but needs to be shipped. So you can now just pass in anything you want. And, and also, <laughs> go on, I'm just going to say, uh, globally available server-side API, rapid performance all over the world, no matter where you are, use a server-side API, it's going to respond really fast. We're also going to be taking our infrastructure from just being CDN, and then kind of US behind it to being deployed locally across all of the world. So it's going to be absolutely rapid for your website. It's going to get faster and faster for all of your users. It's going to be the fastest analytics on the planet. Wow. I don't want to say anything else because these there's so much going on and things are absolutely on fire right now. I've got a crazy project at the moment that I can't really talk about, but it's it's nuts. And if I keep <laughs> hyping stuff, Paul will genuinely come, come to my house and, and, and hit me and kill me. So. <laughs> Wow. You guys are really not fucking around, are you? 
<laughs> if you could see yeah i know genuinely i have been banned from talking about stuff and i could get in a bit of trouble by yeah. paul for, for talking about it but there's lots coming and we're now moving much faster than before and we're working more horizontally and working with more developers a bigger team full-time support now things are going really really well and we're going to keep it up love that well i'm super hyped for you I'm hyped for you just as an entrepreneur, but also just like as a Fathom user as well. So yeah. So something I like to ask people as well, just like is the lowest point that you have had in your journey in building Fathom. And I have an idea of what this might be, mm. but I just like to confirm that with you. Was this the denial of service attack that happened to you that you wrote about? Yeah. What a cool question. So I love this. <laughs> you, you've given me a vibe since like I first become aware of you. You're actually an authentic person. A lot of the startup world is absolute bullshit. And it's, I guess this is why you have a community <laughs> of like a decent community of people. And, and like, try. a lot of startup stuff is bullshit. It's, a, it's a, like a, you know, you go on Facebook, it's a highlight reel. It's like, look how happy we are, says the couple that, you know, the husband's beating the wife or something. Like, it's just this highlight reel of bullshit. It's not a real representation of the human experience. And, and yeah, so I'm not surprised to hear this question from you. Startups have lots of ups and downs. It's not just your revenue, obviously. So yeah. the DDoS attack was really hard because I was, I didn't know what I was doing. I'd never had to worry about us being attacked. No one cared to attack companies I worked for before. They're big companies, but they weren't, people weren't jealous. People weren't angry and the competitors weren't script kiddies or you know this sort of thing and so i didn't have the things in place that we should have had in place i didn't have the two firewalls that i should have in place i didn't have the contacts that could help me with this and so whilst this was a very challenging experience and it burned me out a lot the upside of that is and i, I said this in another podcast nothing phases me anymore i'm not numb but it, it would take a lot to actually stress me out because I've now gone to like this level where you want to throw me a challenge, you want to throw me something stressful, I'm just not going to react in the same way. And it's similar to, you know, you start weight training and 100 kilograms on the bench. That's like a huge target when you first start weight training. When you get this, like this doesn't phase me anymore. You slowly start, you can do two reps, two reps, and then you get to three, four, blah, blah, blah. And then some people are benching 200 kilograms or whatever. It's kind of like that. So you get stronger. And that was a huge low point. Huge, huge burnout. And it took me a while to come back from that, to be completely transparent with you. Yeah. But now if it, ha if it happens now, I have the network that I could tap into immediately and people want to help us. And I think this is where I'm really grateful about Fathom's, I guess, brand is people want to help Fathom. If they hear Fathom, oh, yeah, well, can we, how can we help? And that, I'm really grateful for that. And I'm appreciative of people that have helped us over the years. So thank you to those people if you're listening. <laughs> I'm not surprised because, you know, you definitely carry a lot of authenticity and just like the stuff you're willing to share. And, you know, you've been, so we've, we've already briefly spoke about above board and, but so between your podcast and your blog posts and your, your Twitter account, well, I love your spicy takes. Like I definitely feel that you're kind of like a, a big part of the, the public conversation for like makers and indie hackers. But I'd love to like ask you a bit about with that level of transparency, are there the kind of like trade-offs that come with that as well? Because it obviously builds your brand, it helps in marketing, you build connections. There's all, we all know the good sides of it, but are there any kind of negatives to it as well? Um, for some people, yes. For me, in being transparent about our experience, the negatives of sharing your journey. So the, I, don't, I don't really have an ego 
I'm quite, yeah. and me and you can talk about stuff. If we disagree on things, I'm going to respect, you know, with the discussion, I'm not going to get upset. So no, I'll share, I'll share whatever. I did realize the other day though, I like controlling the things I share. I would be less comfortable if someone was sharing everything and they're watching my whole life and choosing what to share. I choose what I share, right? And so there's transparency to that because I'm also going to share the really bad stuff. But, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll happily talk transparently. And is it, is it exposing weakness or whatever? It's like, well, no, because it makes me stronger. And I'm not phased by it. It doesn't embarrass me. It doesn't do anything. If it's going to help people, that's a win. So no, I don't think there's any downside for me personally. For other people, there might be. They might feel like people are judging them. Whenever someone says, I don't care what people think, they sound really arrogant and you just think, oh, I don't like you. But I do care what people think to an extent, but I'm not. The people who's who I do care about, like if you made a, you know, if you were saying something about me, I'd respect what you have to say. You seem like a nice guy. We'd hang out in real life, and I'm sure we're going to at some point if this indie biz thing, if I ever get up to London. Um, if it's someone random on Twitter, I don't know this person, and I know that once you get bigger and bigger, and like I talked to Adam Wathen, I talked to Paul Jarvis. Once you get bigger and bigger and bigger, you have to get your critics and you have to get the abuse. And so when I get abuse from someone on Twitter, I think, ah, good. This means I'm reaching people in a good way too, because I have to reach people in a good way to get, and I don't want, you don't call them haters, but to get these negative takes. Dude, someone called Tailwind sexist and racist once. Like, oh my <laughs> like, so you have to get to this level is the nuttiest thing I've ever, anyway, you, once you get to a level, you have to have these ridiculous like abuse or comments. And I kind of thrive on them a little bit because it means like, like I say, I'm reaching enough people and hopefully helping. Like I want to help people. I care a lot about that. And it's the full For story. Sure. I don't just want to share little bits. I don't want to say, Oh, you know, millions of dollars, blah, blah, blah. Look at this. Amazing. It's like, no, I'm going to share the full story and I'm going to be honest with you. If you ask me questions, ask me if I'm struggling about something. Ask me when I struggled about something. I'll be honest with you. And I think people really appreciate that. And, you know, I was talking to someone the other day about this. It's just like, you know, once you, when you're just tweeting or whatever, or sharing content about your niche and you're just interacting with people in your niche, it's always good. It's always very positive. It's when stuff kind of escapes your like core niche that then you start to get the kind of, <laughs> the kind of hate. Like everyone says that everyone, yes. everyone, everyone that gets over like 50,000 followers starts tweeting like Naval. <laughs> they start tweeting like fortune cookie tweets that like, oh. they're not going to get as much hate for. Have you noticed this? Like, you know, as you've grown your audience, like have you changed anything about how you interact with other people online or is it kind of still, you're not quite at that stage where it gets really crazy yet? No, I, yeah, interesting, because it does get to a point where you can't engage with everything. I try to help where I can, but I also know I have a limit. And my default, when I get so many emails, I create a course. I'm not doing any more courses. They take up a lot of time and a lot of energy, and you, you make money off of them, but it's not, it's not enough to justify your time when you're running a startup. So I don't know how that's going to look. I'm, I'm not at that point yet. I, I if I, I don't think I'd have to curb my personality. I'm really quick to block though, Charlie. If someone's on there to get really upset about something or you know, to extrapolate offense from something that isn't meant from offense, I'm big into intent and I'm not into these people that look for look for hate and look for, you know, look for arguments over everything. So I used to mute and I used to think, you know, I don't want to cause a scene. I'm just gonna mute. Now I, I'm really aggressive on the blocking. The SVB bank run, I blocked aggressively. Because I'm like, these are startups. These are employees of startups, over 120, hundreds of thousands of employees. And you're gloating about rich people losing. 
And I just thought that's really, I don't like those kinds of people. So I just block them. And I, I often joke that my block list is worth millions of dollars because it's so, so good. I don't have any drama, really. I just block aggressively. Because here's the thing. The people that are getting angry on Twitter, I'm not talking about the ones that are justifiably angry over something, but the people that are getting angry as a job, as a full-time job, they they should probably jump off Twitter and jump into lots of therapy. And I, I, I haven't got the time to be their therapist, unfortunately, because I don't know them. And I don't want their their anger and their their hostile way to to come into my life because it just it saps my energy you know i like talking to people that are chill like the person i'm talking to now you know like these people give me energy and i get good vibes from them and uh, one, one more thing i've got i'm good at reading people i can read people really really well i can tell if someone's going to be toxic so i remove them before they come into my life and take up my time and i make sure i my circle's really like james james like me mutual friend exactly. james is a, a good guy a raw a real guy yeah so uh, people like that i talked to james yeah same <laughs> shout out james because i think he's listening in but yeah shout out to you mate but yeah i mean <laughs> all the more sort of granular level like i'm fairly new to to podcasting and stuff you've been doing it for a few years like did that come very naturally to you you come across very articulate like the way we're, we're speaking here or did, did you kind of like develop that sort of skill over time oh dude i just Honestly, I just, <laughs> Paul is good at preparing the episodes and the content and he does the editing. I just talk, you know, I, I try and be as real as possible. I know my limits. I'm, I'm not very good at a whole bunch of things. If we talked about any other topic outside of like scaling data and maybe health, I'm okay on health. But if we talked about any other topic with people in your audience, I'd be dumb. I'd be the one asking questions because I, ha- I know nothing. So I'm quite often a, a sponge. When we get onto topics I know about, I can talk. Uh, if you say articulately, that's very kind of you. Um, but no, I just I just talk, to be honest with you, dude. I try my yeah, best straight, and talk. Straight, straight from the heart is the best way sometimes. Well, the, a topic that I'd just be still be curious to get your view on. So you, obviously for me, knowing you more from Twitter, honestly, than really knowing you, but you seem someone that's mm. quite resistant to hype and trends and tech trends and that sort of thing <laughs> would you say sure. that's right <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. No, okay yeah resistant in some ways yeah sure okay yeah yeah so i don't want to say you're like you know like you're obviously not you're obviously not a luddite you're a technologist like you're inventing systems for privacy data <laughs> sure. and stuff. but i'm just wondering with a big current tre- tech trend which is some of the new ai stuff coming out like gpt4 that sort of thing do you feel anything different about this trend to like other ones that maybe like I'm not sure about that or that kind of thing? Like, how are you thinking about, let's just say specifically the stuff that's coming out from OpenAI, like ChatGPT? Yeah, I okay. can't can't comment from any moral perspective, any copyright perspective. If I go purely through a tech lens, because that's all yes. I can offer, I'm excited by it. I've used ChatGPT. I think it's remarkable. GitHub Copilot, I just started using a month ago, maybe a little bit less. Absolutely love it. It's just phenomenal. Crypto, I'm not that interested. I, I don't, there's a lot to know about crypto. And I think I haven't had the time to invest and learn about it because the people that are really into it, I'm not talking about the people that just are there to try and scam. I'm talking about the the technical folks, the Miguel Pedrafita. I don't know if you know who that is. Yeah. He was on yeah. the, he works for WorldCoin. So him, he cares about the tech. And he probably has, you know, whatever in crypto. He doesn't care. He's there for the tech. I'm interested through that lens. I'm not interested through the media hype lens around, you know, Bitcoin's a currency, but it's also this thing that we think is going to go up in value. 
I'm interested in, oh, I've, these people here are very passionate and they see a future for this tech. They may be onto something. I'm going to listen to what Miguel's talking about. He never talks about money. Have you noticed that? He always talks about the tech and he yeah. doesn't want people. He, he actually gets upset when people are hyping it up and ruining crypto. So I'm open-minded, but I can sort of detect hype when media is involved. When VCs are involved I, or you know, really rich, influential people, I'm also kind of red flag. Okay, what's the play here? What's there to gain for them? Why are they doing this? But AI is really exciting to me. And I can even see ways it fits into our product. And I'm not against new things. You know, I'm, I'm pretty excited in general. But I also can't spend tons of time exploring things because I then get distracted from you know, a million other things. Yeah, so. for, for sure. Is it the kind of thing that you're mandating into your team's workflow of, oh, you should all be using Copilot, for example, because you'll just be more efficient? Or is it not that kind of strict at the moment? Oh, dude, never mandating. I mean, we're, we're so chill. Like, our, our big thing with people that we employ is they should have the same quality of life as us, like the freedoms, the you know time off, everything, the flexibility. We're a very relaxed company. Get your work done and no one's going to challenge you about anything. That's it. So I said, look, we'll pay you for Copilot if anyone wants to use it. And then they used it and everyone loves it. So Awesome, awesome. Are there any other kind of questions? This is not necessarily the last question, by the way. But are there any things that you wish people would ask you on these kinds of podcasts or interviews that they just don't ask you, but you think it'd be good to? What do I wish I could talk about on these calls? I don't know, dude. Like, I'm pretty open. Like, I talk about a lot of stuff. So there's a lot. Anything I want to share, I do share. I like, I'm on my, um, my soapbox a little bit about revenue sharing. Revenue is helpful because revenue gets you to quit your job or it helps pay your mortgage, pay your rent, pay your bills. And that is relevant. I just want to say that there are a bunch of things more important than your revenue and obsessing about revenue. If you're a indie maker and you're like, oh, revenue is going up, revenue is going up, but you're not exercising at least you know, four or five times a week, that's an issue. Your revenue can be 100K MRI, I don't care. You need to be exercising. You need to be spending time with your friends and your family because guess what? Your revenue is not going to stop you from getting depression, from getting all anxiety, all these things. You need to be treating yourself really well. And I actually gave advice to a friend about he's looking to do a startup at some point. I said, look, you obviously, you know, you're working or you're, you're at a job or whatever. You've got to stay there for the money. Get your foundations really solid. And whilst you're doing this, because the more you can invest in yourself and the exercise and the nutrition supplements if you want all of that stuff and your relationships the stronger you're going to be to operate a startup mrr is such a shallow thing i'm not saying it doesn't matter i'm just saying don't obsess about the mrr because that's just it's not healthy i think that's a that's really insightful piece of info because you're right people just fixate on it and you know sometimes i also ask like what's like a kind of one thing piece of advice you'd leave indie hackers with but i think that's a good enough answer (laughs) that we could just like say that is your answer probably because you know in myself i I found i found i I found myself fixating on you know like not fixating enough on health and you know like i think it's a very common thing so yeah i think it's an important message yeah it is look look at me i'm like i'm like overweight i haven't been i've been neglecting my health i used to have a bodybuilding app i used to be into you know all the health stuff it's easy to forget and i've only been back on it for a period of time and not depression related not anything but just 
if you want to be at optimal performance, you've got to have your health as a priority. It's not just something oh, I'm going to go and work out. It's got to be, you know, I'm, I'm going to invest in my body and myself. So I'm just on a bit of a, a bit of a one with that. Cause I don't think enough indie makers prioritize the right things. And they do some people dangerously obsess. I've, I've seen people on Twitter agonizing over losing money or agonizing over not making enough money. It's like, okay, just keep focused step by step, little by little. Do you have any health goals at the moment that you're working towards? Yeah, I got to cut about 60 to 70 pounds of weight for me to be in optimal shape. Strength is one thing, functional strength. We've got some sandbags coming. I'm going to get into more, you know, I get back problems. Actually, my back's not hurting. So I've got a really cool thing to share. If anyone who's listening gets back pain, look at something called psoas raise, and it's spelled P a P S O A S. If you've got back pain, do a psoas raise. Doesn't need to be with any weight. Where you lift your knee up, and your knee kind of goes quite high up. You hold it, you kind of move it a little bit up and down. Try and get it for sixty seconds each leg. Do a few sets. I haven't got any back pain. I just realised that as I'm talking to you. That's so amazing. yeah, I'm I'm so into the health side of things. I really am. I think that, that that we don't talk about that enough. Honestly, dude, like it's more mental health. You hear about how many people get burnout, get depression, get all of these things. It's like yeah, because we're all focused on the wrong things, and you you can quickly go from feeling gloomy to full blown, you know, issues. And so I really I really think we have to start looking at health. How are you? Tr- if you're in a relationship, how much time are you spending with your partner? If you're you know your wife or husband how much time you're spending with them. Let's start focusing on the right stuff. And then my goals are just to keep getting fitter and stronger and more healthier and to keep trying to help people with that stuff as well. Like I care a lot about, I care about good people. I, I have, the, I maybe can improve there. When someone's a toxic arsehole and even though they've got problems, I just don't, I'm like, I'm like fuck off. Sorry, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear. Yeah, you but, are. Yeah, I, <laughs> oh, okay. I, I, try, I avoid them because I don't want to be brought down. But if someone's good and I get a good vibe from them, then I'll, I'll always engage and try and help. Sorry, this is a, a safe space where you can swear. But um, you just did make me think, though, it's like as, a, <laughs> someone that, so as someone that manages a community uh, for founders, you know, the main, you ask what people want. I also do a lot of user research in my day job. You ask what people want, they always say, mm-hmm. you know, their struggles are like, you know, time management, they need education. Sometimes they get lonely, that sort of thing. But what people never say which i think they need but don't know they need is like you they need to be healthier they just need to like drink more water <laughs> like go on walks more and that sort of thing yeah and- no kidding <laughs> in- in- incremental steps little by yeah. little it, when we get into this headspace of i gotta start this new training split and i've got this big write-up and i'm gonna follow it everyone gets overwhelmed i'm not gonna do that i can't go from zero to a hundred but what i can do right now is i can go and stand up i can do calf raises i can do press-ups i can do some sit-ups i can do some boxing that was really good i hope that looks good on camera but you <laughs> can't do it. this is in the way <laughs> i can do some boxing i can buy a treadmill for my desk people need to aim smaller Everyone's aiming big. And I just seen someone on chat. It's very hard to leave work behind to go to the gym. Completely agree. I completely agree. Who's, whoever said that in the chat about how it's imp- it's hard to leave work behind, stand up right now and go on your tiptoes and do that Do that 10 times and then do another 10 and keep doing that. They're called carve races. No weights needed. Do that. And you're going to start getting a burn. 
like there's time to fit these small things in. It doesn't have to be this big grandiose jump. This is why people don't succeed in business, by the way, because they're like, oh, you know, big company, big company. Like, I'm so anxious. I'm I'm feeling nervous. I don't know. Am I going to get this big? Can I do it? They get in their own head and then it prevents them from doing it. You need to focus on small things. When I was doing Fathom in the early days, I, w- I didn't know what was going to happen. And I remember sitting in the UK in my old childhood home and I'd say, fuck what happens. You don't know what's going to happen, dude. So stop even trying to think about it. You do one little thing at a time, stack it, stack it, stack it, compound, compound, compound. That's all you can do and all you can control. Stop worrying about this future that you just don't understand or know about and do what you can do now. And so the guy who's on chat, do the carve raises. And then guess what? Do do 20 and maybe that's enough for you. Do 30 tomorrow, do 40 the next day. I don't know, whatever speed you're going to do, do something because that little step is going to put you in the right direction. And you genuinely may not feel mentally ready or physically ready to go to a gym. Not a problem. But guess what? You can get on the floor or you can stand up and do some boxing. You can put on plan B, uh, plan B, end credits, chase and status, and do some boxing <laughs> to that song. You get out of breath too quickly, do it slower. There's always something small you can do and those things compound. So stop focusing on the grandiose. Keep it calm. Do those little steps you can do. Do things that are attainable. That's how you succeed. No one jumps from zero to a thousand unless they're incredibly lucky. Mark Zuckerberg with Facebook, for example. Uh, even then, we don't know the small steps that were taken. Do something small that you can control. You want a standing desk? Do the card raises. Boom, he's doing it. That's it. That's how you make small steps to improvement. You start doing that, you will suddenly feel more ready to do the airboxing. Just don't have such big goals. Big goals fuck us up, man. I know that sounds silly to say because we're startup founders and stuff, but big goals can really, that can lead to huge depressions, by the way. you got a big goal. You think about how you're going to make it and you're not happy with where you are because you're not at your big goal. Stop aiming so fucking high. Think about it (laughs) occasionally. Okay, cool. Well, that's my guiding light. I'm not going to keep comparing myself to that. I'm going to take small steps because I don't know what's going to happen. Anyway, I'm going off on one, but that's that's how (laughs) I feel strongly about this stuff, as you might have realized. Jack, I'm a pretty chill guy, but I think I'm ready to like go into battle or something after that. That was great. Yeah, man. Small steps. <laughs> Mate, exactly. Mate, that was awesome. Well, Jack, it's been absolutely awesome to have you on. Loads of amazing insights and inspiration from you. So all we're going to say is just keep doing what you're doing, sharing your knowledge online. And yeah, I think you're going to help a lot more people. So thanks very much for coming and joining us today. Thanks for having me, mate. And I'm excited to meet you either this year or next year. So it'll be fun. We'll make it happen, man. We'll make it happen.